Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to, um, to share with you thoughts about imperfect competition uh, in the power industry. The title of the presentation is from Enron with Love because uh, Enron uh, is probably the best case study of imperfect competition and I think the California crisis uh, illustrates all the pitfalls um, that can befell the, the power industry and how market power can be exercised. So Enron, of course, is very unfortunate for the people in California, uh, but for us in academia, it's, a, it's an endless uh, supply of case studies and examples. So I guess the love is, is for us. Uh, there are two, um, uh, when, when you look at the power industry, uh, there are um, three points I would like to make today. The, the first one is that the, the standard model of the power industry, uh, or the standard model of any industry, really, assumes perfect markets uh, and we understand those models very well they provide nice results uh, that we are uh, fully comfortable with. Uh, in reality of course markets are imperfect uh, there are some frictions uh, that allow market participants to exercise market power. Uh, there are two particular frictions I'd like to explore with you today. Uh, the one is the short-term manipulation uh, Short-term manipulation is really manipulation in the spot market. Um, and uh, this is something we see in many industries. Uh, in the power industry, it's a little more complicated uh, because of the particular features of the industry, because of the, uh, in particular, the, the, the very time sensitiveness of the price of power, uh, the standard rules that you could apply to other industries like the airlines or the chemicals uh, do not apply and the regulators have to develop other methods uh, to control for the exercise, to detect and to control market power in the short term. Uh, there is another way that uh, participants could exercise their market power uh, which is at the in investment stage. That is, they could, when they invest, invest a bit less than what is required knowing that that will lead to higher prices. Um, what I'd like to convince you of is that uh, underinvestment, strategic, systematic underinvestment is not very likely in the power sector and the experience we have is more of an experience of boom-bust boom cycle where you have cycles of overcapacity and undercapacity. So there are the three points of the presentations. I'm going to go through them and I'll take questions at the end, um, both clarifying questions but also follow-up and, and comments at the end. Uh, with that in mind, let's look at the standard model. Uh, the standard model of the power industry developed in 1949. Um, it's actually a French economist called Marcel Boiteux uh, who developed the model. Um, interestingly enough, Boiteux was uh, not only a very uh, bright economist uh, because his model is used today still uh, to understand power markets, uh, he was also uh, a remarkable man in his own right. Uh, he went on to lead the company EDF in the 70s, who was both um, a great academic but also uh, certainly a great um, business person. So the model is standard. You have on the x-axis uh, the, um, the quantity, on the y-axis, the vertical axis, you have the price, uh, and you have a downward sloping demand curve, which means that as the price goes down, people buy more of the product. We see that uh, for electricity, we also see that for iPhones. Uh, if an iPhone costs $10,000, less people will buy it than if an iPhone costs $100. So downward demand 
uh, is increasing as the price decreases. The specificity of the power industry is that demand varies over time. So now I'm going to show you demand in different hours of the year or states of the world. So the first demand curve on the left represents, for example, uh, a summer day uh, in Europe. So you have a little demand for power. The last demand curve represents an evening in the winter where demand is the highest. So for the same price, you consume less power in the summer than you would in the winter. Um, the specificity also of the power industry is that uh, the good you produce, electricity, is non-storable. That is, you cannot produce here <clears throat> in the summer to consume in the winter. Whatever you produce at one hour, you have to consume in that hour. And in fact, it's really second by second that you have to balance the system. These two features, uh, the fact that demand varies over time and the fact that you cannot store the good are shared with other industries. So think about the hotel industry, for example, or the airlines industry. Uh, hotel rooms are more demanded uh, at the beach, for example, if you look at a seaside resort, uh, there is more demand for hotel rooms in the summer than in the winter. Um, if you look at airplane, air travel, there is more demand for air travel around Christmas uh, or in the summer than there would be in the fall or in the spring. So those are the features of the power industry. And then the question you ask yourself are, you know, how should we price this good with demand that is varying? Uh, and what kind of capacity should we install uh, to serve demand? So let me look at uh, a simple example. You have only one production technology, uh, which has a viable cost of production, which is constant, and which has a viable cost of installing capacity, which is also constant. This is a simple case. gets you all the intuition without the pain that some of the math gets you through. So, the, the intuition that what you developed is that when you are off-peak, that is when you are below the capacity, uh, the price should really be at the viable cost of production. So that is when you have more capacity, uh, when you are away from the capacity constraint, uh, when you want to produce one more megawatt hour, you just turn off, turn on the turbine a bit more, you produce, you use a bit more fuel, and the price should just cover that viable cost of production. Uh, contrast that with the on-peak period where you add capacity, and here you cannot produce more. So here it's the reverse. It's the demand that had to adjust to the available capacity. So the price increases, the price goes up, precisely to the point where demand matches capacity. So you have one such intersection here, and you have one such intersection there. So that's the basic model. So we solve the pricing question, you know, off-peak price is equal to the short-term viable cost, on-peak price balances supply and demand, and the capacity constraint is the one that is setting the price. Uh, the last question was how much capacity should we install? And here the rule is that the margin that you realize during the on-peak hours at the margin has to be exactly equal to the cost of the capacity, the incremental cost of the capacity. So that's the answer. You can look at it in a slightly different way. So what I've done here is on the x-axis, I've put the hours. On the y-axis, the vertical axis, 
I've put the price and you see that the price is at the marginal cost for many hours which is the green line of the year and the price goes up for some hours so I've ordered the hours in orders of increasing prices so there are hours where the price is high this is the, the triangle under the red line and we know that the surface of this triangle has to be equal at the optimum or the long-term equilibrium has to be equal to the cost of the capacity and we also know from engineering that the cost of that capacity today in Europe is around 60,000 euros per megawatt per year. So if you want to build a peaking capacity it costs you 60,000 euros per megawatt and in equilibrium that has to be equal to the operating margin which is the surface of the triangle. So 60,000 euros per megawatt you know if you want to look at it one way or the other it could be 20,000 euros, it could be 2,000 euros I'm sorry for 30 hours it could be 3,000 euros for 20 hours essentially it means that for a few hours during the year the price will be 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 euros a megawatt hour. Off peak the price will be much lower the, the green line in fact is around the viable cost of production the viable cost of production depending on the technology you use it is around 20 or 30 euros a megawatt hour maybe up to 40 euros if you put in a carbon tax so what you see here is the fundamental nature of the power industry you have off-peak hours with prices at about 20, 30, 40 and you have on-peak hours when the price could be much much higher when the price could be about a hundred times more and this is what makes the power industry different from any other industry when you look at the airlines when you look at the hotel maybe you get a factor of four or five between the off-peak and the on-peak in the power industry the microeconomics the basic micro gives you a factor of a hundred between the off-peak and the on-peak so that's the basic microeconomics and if the markets were perfect this is what we would see now we know the markets are not perfect and the great story is the Enron story which is probably the clearest and the most documented abuse uh, story about abuse of market power so before we describe that story let's just me ask you a question and I'll be a poll question coming up to you mm -hmm. uh, about Enron whether they were evil people or not and you can answer that question and then we'll discuss the, the story of Enron so essentially what happened is that in 1996 the California state decided to deregulate its power industry so they created a market power a, a, I'm sorry a market for power uh, the market for power opened in 1998 uh, and it started working very well but by the summer of 2000 really by the fall of 2000 uh, the prices of power in California started to go up to reach levels around a thousand dollars a megawatt hour and more and they had at some point uh, they had uh, blackouts so at some point there was less power coming into California than demand for power and they really had to implement rolling blackouts so the system operator had to shut down power in some parts of the state at different hours so that was a big catastrophe that was a complete debacle um, that, that really paralyzed the state um, you can see the poll results Thomas. 
I know I can see the poll results. You should be able to see. Uh, we have the 39% who say yes, while the 31 is saying no, and the other 29 uh, doesn't know. Okay. Well, I think that's a fair um, that's a fair response. The um, um, the the story is that the, what happened after the fact is that there was an inquiry. The, the Californian government uh, shared the view of the first group of people. So they said, you know, this uh, Enron was manipulating the market. They created false shortages and so on and so forth. Uh, and there were some inquiries. There was a judici judicial inquiry. Uh, and some tapes uh, were uncovered that um, showed conversation between the traders at Enron among themselves and between the traders and the producers and the tape showed that Enron people literally took some actions to increase their profits and took willingly the risk of shutting down parts of California. So in a way they were manipulating the market uh, to increase their profit, to maximize their profit without uh, taking care of or paying um, attention, being sensitive to uh, delivering power to the good customers of California. So for the first group of you, yes, they were in fact manipulating the market. However, and I think that's an important point, however, what they did was manipulating the existing rules. So in very few instances where they're breaking the rules. Uh, so the rules were very complex, were ambiguous, they left a lot of room for arbitrage, uh, they were very imperfect. And what the traders did uh, was mercilessly uh, and to a certain extent without much remorse exploiting the loopholes in those rules. Um, so that there are two lessons that come out of California. Um, the first lesson, which I think is legitimate, uh, is to say, you know, the, when the, 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 the traders or more generally the power producers are going to try to make as much money as they can for their shareholders, so you should be mindful that uh, if they have an opportunity, they'll try to increase their profits. And to a certain extent, you could argue that that's what they, were, they get paid for. The second lesson that comes out of California is that if the rules are very complicated, uh, in other words, if you have a very thick rule book, surprisingly enough, the traders are going to find it easier to find loopholes between the rules. So one way to, to tell the story, which is of course a bit too simple and not completely true, but I think it illustrates the point, is that if you have a very thick rule book, like if you have 600 pages of rules, it will be easier for the traders to find a difference or a discrepancy between page 20 and page 172, that if you have a very short rule books where the rules might be a bit tighter. So those are the two lessons that come out of California. Um, now, what is the problem for the regulator? The problem for the regulator is that economic theory, uh, and when I say regulator, I mean regulator, policymakers, antitrust agencies in, in, in general. So those are price schedules that you see for the United States. They date between March 1999 and, and July 2002. They are a bit dated, they are a bit old, but I think they tell the story very well. Um, as I told you before, you need to have hours where the prices are very high for these markets to work. Because otherwise, people would never recover uh, their capital costs, they would just cover the viable costs. So you need those peak hours where the prices are very high. The question for the regulators is when you see those spikes, 
are they natural and normal and do they are they just a normal cost recovery process that is they just cover the fixed cost or do they signal that some market power is being exercised and this is a very difficult question to answer because in other industries again you see prices at 100 when prices spike to 200 300 for a hotel room three times the average rate or for a plane ticket five six times the average rate you could say well there's something fishy going on and you could potentially use that information as an inquiry in the power industry prices that are above a hundred times above the normal rate are not uncommon and can be justified economically so the challenge for the regulators is how many spikes are right or what is the right level of spikes to uncover the challenge um, I propose we now dive into the two um, ways that markets could be manipulating manipulated uh, the first one is short-term manipulation and the second one is long-term manipulation so the short-term manipulation the best way to understand that is you look at the markets without manipulation so you have on the red curve is a standard supply curve and I've, I've represented it stepwise so I have multiple technology you have a supply curve and the blue curve is a demand curve and if there is no uh, market power the suppliers are going to produce power and say that the short-term marginal cost now um, when you look at market power what's going to happen is that the price is going to be much higher than the short-term marginal cost and again the question you want to ask yourself is is this high price higher than what we believe is the short-term marginal cost that is the fuel cost um, is that uh, high price the reflection of normal cost recovery that is you want to recover your fixed cost or is that uh, an indication of market manipulation so the first thing you're going to look for are price spikes as a potential way that the market be manipulated that is producers knowing that demand is very tight are going to raise the price and are going to raise it not only above their short-term marginal cost but only the above the but also above the level that would enable them to recover their investment cost the second type of market manipulation is quantity reduction and this we observed in California so I give you an example see if competition was perfect or producers which have the 2000 uh, gigawatt hour of quantity to produce would produce 2000 given supply and demand the price would balance itself at 20 so this point here is 20 and the profit that those producers will make is 20 minus 10 times 2000 comes about to 20 million euros now producers could also reduce their production level so what they would do then is that instead of producing 2000 they could produce only a thousand if they do that they are not going to have an impact on the uh, demand curve the demand is going to be the same but then you see that the price is going to be the balance between demand and supply the price is going to be set at 50 so all of a sudden they will get a profit of 50 minus 10 which is 40 over the volume of a thousand so they'll get a higher profit by producing a lower quantity so by reducing their production they increase the price and in some instances that price increases increase more than outweighs 
the volume reduction. And we have evidence from the tapes that this is what happened during the California crisis, that some of the traders voluntarily shut down power plants or reduce the production at power plants so that the price goes up. So that's the second way you can manipulate markets uh, in the short term. So what can we do to mitigate market power? Uh, there are two ways that regulators can mitigate market power. The second one is more, exp it's a monitoring. So what you do is you calculate concentration ratios, that is you look at the number of players, uh, you can calculate market shares, you can calculate HHI indices, HHI is uh, the sum of the square of the market shares. Those are all measures that tell you how concentrated an industry is. You can also calculate hourly price and cost margins. So this is specific to the power industry. Concentration ratios and HHIs are generic. They are applied in every other industry. In the power business, you have a new metric, which is price cost margin per hour. So you're going to calculate the cost uh, that would uh, the, the cost of the marginal unit for every hour. Uh, there are 8,760 hours in every year. So that's a lot of cost to calculate. And then you're going to compare the cost, the marginal cost, with the market price in that hour. You're going to take the average, and you're going to decide whether the difference between the price and the cost is consistent with competitive behavior or whether it's consistent with anti-competitive behavior. And if you determine that the price-cost margin is consistent with anti-competitive behavior, then you can launch an inquiry you know, and, and subpoena emails and so on and so forth to understand what happens. So that is, of course, a very uh, complex task that requires a lot of data. Uh, certainly, that kind of analysis uh, was not uh, available in California at the time of the crisis. And now most regulation agencies uh, have equipped themselves with market monitoring units in the United States and in Europe. And those market monitoring units are responsible for conducting those, those uh, analysis and tell us whether they feel, they think, or they have evidence that the power markets are manipulated or not. So that's the, the, the first thing about the monitoring. The other solution that you can use if you want to mitigate market power uh, is actually to put a price cap. Uh, this is a standard practice. You say, you know, we feel that this industry is not really competitive, so we're going to cap the prices. And in the power business, you have legal price caps. So for example, uh, in Europe, there's a price cap at 3,000 euros per megawatt hour, which is the price cap in the day ahead market. So we will not see uh, prices in the day ahead market exceeding 3,000 euros a megawatt hour. Uh, or you can have de facto price caps. That is when the system gets tight, uh, the, the system operator uh, asks for some plants to be running uh, at, 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 at cost or has some contracts or organize itself to limit uh, the, the rising prices. Uh, price caps are a bad idea. Um, they are very appealing uh, from a policy perspective, but they do not do well with economic analysis. Uh, why is that? Well, as I told you before, you need to have a few hours of AI prices uh, for the producers to cover the capital cost. If you put a price cap, by definition, the price in the peak hours is not going to reach the level you need. 
so the prices are going to be too low so there's going to be what we call missing money missing money which is a term uh, that was coined in the United States means that there is not enough revenue to cover the cost of capital and when you get missing money then it's become complicated you have underinvestment and you need to create another mechanism which is called a capacity market or a capacity mechanism more generally to retrieve that missing money so all of a sudden you get into more complicated architecture for markets so price caps while they are appealing create their own set of issues so let's now look at the long-term <clears throat> manipulation and here what we expect is to say producers could decide collectively to reduce their capacity and then if the capacity that they, they install is lower by definition the price will go up in the market they will not be needing they will not need to manipulate the market in the short term because the capacity will be tight and the prices naturally will rise and they will create profit so the example um, that was used by the Commission is the European Commission Energy Sector Inquiry 2005-2006 they looked at the supply curve for Germany so the supply curve is the set of producers so the right one is the curve then 2004 is the gray one and 2005 is the, um, the black one and what the Commission observed is that you know there was less and less production capacity installed during the 2000 demand in Germany was going up at that time so they concluded that the German producers <clears throat> had strategically reduced their capacity so as to increase the price of course German producers reacted and said you know we did not reduce capacity to increase the price reduce capacity to reduce emissions because the plants we goes down we have a meeting and we wanted to protect the atmosphere and so on and so forth so that's a longer debate but the idea here is that we fear that producers could reduce the capacity so that the price go higher do not believe that we have evidence that those things happen uh, what we have evidence of uh, is what is called the boom bust cycle uh, I'm not, and this is something that happens in many many industries so this gives you the chart where you see here gives you the um, the capacity uh, what is called the reserve margin in the United States between 1990 and 2009 so the red line is the reserve margin as you can see it starts for 22 goes down to 14 and then it goes back up and down and back up again the normal reserve margin should be around 15 percent uh, and you can see here that it's higher higher or lower than the 15 percent but it never really gets to 15 percent so that's something that's called the boomba cycle and I wonder whether some of you have heard about it and I think there'll be a, a poll question coming up as yeah, to whether this is something we see only in the power industry or this is something we see in all other industries I think you suggested the answer but then the result is quite obvious and the, the 83 percent say said yes, to yes. The, um, yeah so it's something that we see in all the industries in the world um, the idea is that when the prices are uh, at the bottom of the cycle uh, the capacity margin is a bit tight the prices are very high therefore people built a lot of power plants uh, but then because they build a lot of power plants uh, all of a sudden the prices become high I'm sorry very low because they are too many power plants the prices are low and then they have to shut down the plants 
and then the reserve margin goes down again, the reserve margin is down, the price is high, and then they all build uh, power plants and the cycle continues. This is something you see in every industry in the world. You see that in power, you see that in aluminum, you see that in steel, you see that in oil. The, the history of the oil industry is really the history of boom cycle. You see that in chemicals, this is something very standard. Um, we had our own boom cycle in Europe in 2000. Um, so this is the curve that shows the demand for uh, power in the EU 28 between 2000 and 2013. As you see, it was growing up nicely until 2008. Um, so the producers were expecting sustained demand growth. So they built power plants um, and in anticipation of that sharp growth. Uh, however, the, the 2008 crisis happened and then demand went down. So we had way too many power, power plants that were built. They were built in anticipation of that high growth and demand went down. And something else that happened is that in the same time, uh, power companies in Europe have not been um, um, anticipating uh, the growth of renewables. So you have a situation where renewables went, uh, for example, wind went to almost zero to 100 uh, in less than 10 years. So you had a situation where you had too many power plants with renewable entry. Uh, so that was a situation that was very difficult. Uh, for the power producers, and we are now in the best part of the cycle with a lot of power plants being shut down throughout Europe, as you have seen. So we have had now our own boom cycle in Europe. So, uh, what do we take from that? Um, there are two, uh, the, the conclusions that an economist can draw from that is, is one that is very nuanced. Um, and I want to emphasize that there is no simple answer to the problem. On the one hand, we know that energy-only markets, that is, normal power markets, are imperfect. Uh, we know that they are prone to boom-bust cycles, like every other commodity known to man. Uh, we know that there is a risk of involuntary curtailment, so in the boost cycle, there may not be enough power plants, and we may have to see the price go very high, and we may, in some instances, uh, have involuntary cut curtailment of customers. Uh, that, I believe, can be handled by demand management. Uh, so the risk, I believe, is limited, but there is a risk that you have a voluntary curtailment of customers. We also know that Boomba's cycle, that um, power markets are subject to market manipulation, uh, and the California example, which was a very badly designed market, but it, it serves as a reminder that market manipulation is possible. On the other hand, we know that those uh, markets produce strong price signal. So when the prices go very high, we believe that that gives incentive for people to uh, produce to the most of their ability. So in a way, that encourages operational excellence. It also encourages demand response. If the price of power shoots up to 2,000 euros a megawatt hour, demand response is going to be much higher. Uh, we see more customers interested in reducing their demand. So in a way, we, we feel that the, uh, there are some correcting mechanism, which is kind of standard in economics. When the price of a commodity goes up, there are some correcting mechanism that takes it down. But those markets are imperfect. The other solution is the architecture we have in most North American market and we see coming up in Europe, which is called a capacity mechanism, which is to say, we're going to limit 
the price in the spot market and we're going to have to somehow provide payments for the capacity by creating a capacity market. <coughs> so the good news is you get the right capacity but then you create uh, um, instruments, you, you administer markets. So if you have administered markets which means that the decision of the market parameters uh, will have significant impact from the participants so there will be a race for subsidies in shaping the rules of the market to advantage one group of participants or another. The prices will not rise very high in the spot market so that will provide a weak price signal in particular for demand response. Uh, and a final observation is that you do have a high degree of political interference in those administered markets. That is the decision on the parameters of the market, the decision on the market structure. Again, it's a, it's a decision done by the system operator, uh, usually under the guidance or under the advice of the, of the authorities, um, the, the public decision makers. So this creates, in a way, uh, a risk of political interference. So you have to choose between two uh, imperfect solutions, and I guess there's a web there's a question, a pool question coming up as to which one yes. you think is best or which one do you think is worst, and what do people think? Let them choose. They have ten seconds more. I'm going to close now and share the results. Okay, we have the 31% who say it's energy only and the 47 who say it's capacity market. Which is the best one or the worst one? The best one, the, the option the is capacity market who got okay. the 47%. Okay, again this is one where you don't, there's no um, economics does not provide you a very clear answer to that question because you're comparing um, things that are non-perfect. Uh, you're comparing the imperfection of a market with the imperfection of regulation and here uh, the answer is that you're better off, uh, you'd rather have a good market than a bad regulation, you'd rather have a good regulation than a bad market and again it depends on the country, on the culture, it depends on the, on the context. Uh, but the point I want to leave you with is that uh, this is not uh, uh, an easy problem to solve and it requires careful uh, monitoring certainly uh, and careful rule setting. So this is what I had to say. Maybe it's time for questions now? Yes, uh, so you are invited to type your questions in the dedicated box. I already have some questions for you, Thomas. So if you could expand your question box, you should see that. Otherwise, I can start from the question I got in my mailbox for you. Um, okay. Okay. I can. Can you read so it or can? There was the first question about uh, has Europe got it wrong with the market-based approach? Um, that's that's of course the main question that one should ask uh, oneself. Uh, and again, when you look at the end of the, the, the presentation, uh, it depends whether you believe, again, there's no single perfect answer. And, and it's one of those things that is sometimes frustrating about economics, but there are some issues for which we have the answer and we tell you, for example, the price goes up, demand goes down. Uh, 
in most cases. So there are things we we understand. Uh, there are things where uh, the answer is it depends. Um, if you believe that um, you can effectively control the exercise of market power, and if you believe that you can live with the boom bust cycle, you're fairly happy with the market-based approach. Uh, if you do not believe that, then you say, you know, the market-based approach has not been successful and we should try something else. Uh, one of the uh, redeeming features or one of the nice things about the market-based approach is that it has shifted the risks. Uh, when you have the boom bust cycle, uh, uh, we had, for example, in other periods in many systems, you had a bit of overcapacity. So the producer, in the 70s, you know, there was a, a, an economic uh, crisis, and we have an example where uh, the production was built anticipating high growth, and in fact, the growth was much lower. So there was a bit, um, there was in some instances too much capacity compared to the bank. So at that time, the excess capacity was paid for by consumers. Uh, this time around, the excess capacity that we see in Europe uh, was paid for by the investors. So in a way, the virtue of the market-based approach is that the people who actually, uh, the investors, who allowed the managers of those firms or encouraged the managers of those firms to build too many uh, power plants are the one paying the, for the cost of the mistakes and not the, um, the customers. So in a way, there's something virtuous about the market approach. I hope that answers your question. Um, Thank you. Uh, we have 10 minutes, maybe more if you can, uh, left to answer man so many questions. You should find in the in the question box. Okay. Can you read them? Yeah, there was something about the term in capacity market. A well-defined capacity market is going to be necessary um, to compensate to uncertainty in prices stemming from uh, the, the impact of intermittent renewables, do you agree? Actually, <clears throat> uh, this is a very technical question and, and the answer is, is no, but it's a complicated answer. Um, uh, when you have renewables, uh, what happens is essentially you reduce the demand that is to be met by the what you call the conventional capacity uh, thermal and nuclear capacity, which is a conventional capacity. So if you add windmills, well, you have less uh, demand to be met uh, by those conventional power plants. Uh, the second thing that happens is that you have a little more uh, volatility, which sometimes a little, much than a little more. Sometimes you have more volatility uh, in the demand, residual demand, between one hour and the next, because not only do you have the volatility linked to demand, but you also have the volatility linked uh, to the, 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 the production of renewables, which, as we all know, is viable uh, production. So you do have more volatility, but when you start running and doing the math, it doesn't change the problem. The problem is the same, uh, except that you have a demand that moves a bit more and the demand that is lower. So adding renewables does not change the fundamental result that I showed you uh, before, the first result I showed you about prices of peak on peak are the same, except that now things are moving a bit more. So utilities in Europe are using 
renewables as an excuse for a capacity market, it doesn't, or capacity mechanism in general, it is not supported uh, by economic analysis. What economic analysis would support is that because of renewables, you have more volatility, so you would need more flexibility. That is, you need power plants that are able to ramp up more quickly, or you would need more storage, or you would need customers that are able to reduce their demand more rapidly. So if anything, uh, the rise of renewable would be more um, uh, a signal for flexibility rather than capacity. This is a, a very short question to a complicated story. I'm not, uh, um, I'm not saying it's, 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 it's more complicated than that, but that's just, uh, uh, that just, um, 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 <clears throat> that's just a short answer. <clears throat> okay, there's a question about demand-side response uh, is lower in markets where there is a capacity market, but my, my understanding is that in PGM the demand-side is very active. That, that's a good question and um, I like it because I think it, it highlights uh, one, of the, um, one of the central points that, that, that we know about power markets. You're absolutely right, there's a very active demand-side in PGM, which is when you are a, a power supplier uh, you can say, you know, I have my peak demand, but I think that I, some of my customers I'll be able to reduce their demand, so you can beat uh, your uh, uh, demand reduction into the capacity market. Uh, what we have seen is that there is actually market power from the supplier in the capacity markets. So the, mark, the, the power suppliers say, look, you know what, we're going to beat 10 gigawatts of demand response into the capacity market, but there's no way to measure how much demand response there will actually be. So in fact, we have evidence that they have bid more demand response that they really are able to deliver to get the prices in the capacity market to be lower, which creates advantages for them. So you're absolutely right that demand side is very active, but demand side was actually, people believe, and there is some evidence manipulated by the power supply. So it illustrates my point that uh, whenever you make rules, you have to be careful and to monitor carefully that the rules you do not you put in place do not lead to exercise of market power by participants one way or other, about uh, one way or on the other. Um, I'm dealing with uh, lots of questions. With, uh, will, there's another question which I think is important. Will market power self-correct by attracting new investment without regulatory intervention? I, I like this question uh, because I think it's at the core, again, it, it's one of the fundamental messages. The answer to my question, and I, I understand it's not going to be very, uh, to that question, I understand it's not going to be super satisfying, is yes in the long run. So market power will correct themselves. So if there are very little, if there are too few power plants, the prices will go up and investors will build those power plants because they see opportunities for profits. On the other hand, in Europe, we see right now that the prices are very, very low because there is overcapacity and the producers are shutting down capacity. So yes, power markets correct themselves. Without regulatory intervention, the investors when they see a profit opportunity, they build the power plant, and when they're losing money on the plant, they shut it down. The problem is that they do, don't do that perfectly and immediately, 
but you have those uh, boom bust cycles that we described. And then the question is can you as a, can we as societies live within those boom bust cycles or do we think they are unacceptable for a variety of reasons? Um, how much more time do we have, Kara? Hello? Can you hear me now, Thomas? Yeah, can, you hear you. can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, about five minutes. My microphone, my microphone was muted. Uh, would you like to stop sharing your screen now? We can see only you. Okay. Of your... <laughs> Thank you very much. So you have five minutes to address as many questions as you can. I don't know. And then for all the others, I think they can write directly to you and also have a look at our web page tomorrow because they will find the recording with all the slides and the contacts to ask more questions. So take these five minutes for you if you don't mind. Uh, I'm sorry, so you want me to continue, to, um, uh, to continue answering the questions? Yeah, only five minutes left. <laughs> okay. If you're not too tired. No, no, I'm good. Because they seem so interested, maybe we should organize uh, another debate on it. Because they seem uh, our really to be, uh, um, uh, okay. There was a question about cap backup capacity. That's a V uh, again. Um, what people sometimes um, there's a bit of a confusion. Uh, the way power markets are run in practice is that you have at every point in town in time megawatt hours uh, that are being produced and consumed but at every point in time you also have what is called operating reserves so when you run your power market uh, you run both a, a market for the power the megawatt hours that are going to actually light your light bulbs but you also run a market for reserves and reserves are power plants that are not producing but that can produce very rapidly more megawatt hours if needed, this is the app reserves, and those are also power plants that can produce very rapidly less megawatt hours if and when needed. So the issue of renewables, and I've seen the question coming up on renewables and, uh, and, uh, and intermittency, is not an issue of capacity, it's an issue of reserves and flexibility. So what people would argue is that when you add intermittent, you need less capacity for thermal plants because you have those megawatt hours coming from the renewables, but you will need a bit more reserves because you want some power plants that are ready to ramp up and run down very quickly to absorb the intermittency of the renewables. Now, to be perfectly honest, this is a, a debate uh, within, so this is very clear and everybody agrees with that. Now, how much more reserve do you need? Do you need to double your reserve? you need to treble your reserve, you need only one and a half the reserve, what kind of reserves you need. This is something that the electrical engineers are still working on. This is where the, the research is going and the electrical engineers are producing models, they are testing those models, we are learning by doing it. Uh, the last I heard, and I'm not saying it's the final, final, final version, the last I heard is that the cost of additional reserves was not negligible, but was not a big, big deal. I understand this is a bit vague, but what the engineers tend to say is, you know, it's manageable, we understand what we need to do, 
and it's not going to double the price of energy in Europe. Uh, so I really want you to see the difference between a story about capacity and a story about reserves, and, and those are different. Thank you very much.